From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dennis Stoda. And I'm Tracy McRae. The promise of individualized medicine is becoming a reality now as doctors are bringing what's learned in the lab right to the bedside. Therapies can now be targeted to your individual needs based on your genetic profile, environment, and lifestyle. On today's program, we'll learn more from the director of Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine and preview the upcoming Individualizing Medicine Conference. It's almost like sending a deep-sea submersible down deeper than anybody's ever gone and seeing what life is down there. It's a bit like that. We haven't had the sensitivity of technology until very recently to do that. Also on the program, we'll hear about the importance of having quality of life discussions during cancer care. And we'll cover treatments for common colorectal problems. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dennis Stoda. And I'm Tracy McRae. Individualized medicine, also known as personalized medicine or precision medicine, means tailoring the diagnosis and the treatment to each patient to optimize their care. Using a person's unique genetic code, researchers and healthcare providers can more effectively and precisely diagnose, treat, predict, and eventually prevent disease. Here to discuss is the director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Keith Stewart. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Stewart. It's great to see you. Good morning, and thanks for having me back. You know, we've been hearing precision medicine and individualized medicine more over the the last year or two, uh, but it was kind of a new term. Uh, When did this really begin as an effective medical tool? Well, the first human genome was sequenced in about 2001, uh, but it really didn't become part of our capabilities to use this clinically until the price dropped to something more affordable. Uh, The Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic was started five years ago. Uh, just past the five-year mark, and that really marked the introduction of building the infrastructure to allow us to introduce this clinically, which is now our sole focus. Is it moving at a really, is it moving at a quick pace, or is it taking baby steps? Well, the technology advancement is remarkable. Uh, the first genome cost close to a billion dollars for one genome. Oh wow! Uh, now it's only uh, probably around one thousand dollars to do this, at least as a research tool. Clinically, there are genetic tests available for a few hundred dollars. You know, folks may see advertisements for uh, direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Uh, Are those good, and and what would they be used for effectively? So there's a democratization of genomics, I'd like to say. It's it's something that's expanding out into the public awareness, and and consumers are interested in it. Um, The major dominant player in the direct-to-consumer marketplace is 23andMe. Uh, Until recently, that was what we would call recreational genomics. It was to find out interesting things about yourself and your family and and maybe your environment. Uh, A a fairly important step in the last year, however, has been that the FDA has now allowed 23andMe and other companies now to come in and offer what we would call um, real medical screening tests. So you can be screened for specific uh, conditions using, you know, without the doctor being involved. But I want to emphasize those are screening tests, and if you want to confirm that the diagnosis is correct, you probably need to go to a regular lab. Well, and wouldn't uh, a genetic counselor be a key piece in that? Because if you are going to go from, oh, I just want to find out where my family is from, you know, what what part of Scotland they're from, to uh, do I have a chance, uh, an increased chance of breast cancer, you're going to want a genetic counselor to be part of that. And is that 
area expanding as equally? Well, this is, this is still very heavily regulated by the FDA, and, and so the testing that is allowed are, are tests that are medically relevant but not necessarily ones in which you would need genetic counselling. So things like celiac disease, for mm. example, would be a good, good test. A lot of people are interested in gluten sensitivity, and sure. you can test to see do you really have gluten sensitivity or not. <laughs> uh, you don't need a genetic counsellor for that because it's not going to impact other members of your family probably, gotcha. uh, or at least if it does, it's not a, a t- tremendously serious problem. Um, on the other hand, things like breast cancer testing are, are very highly regulated. They're not available as a direct-to-consumer test today. A physician and, and possibly genetic cancer still needs to be involved. What about the pharmacogenomics piece? Is that part of something that you can find in uh, direct-to-consumer testing? Again, the answer is no. Okay. Uh, again, because the FDA is concerned quite rightly that if you are told information about what drugs you can and can't take, you may unnecessarily stop a medication or you may avoid taking one and unless that is really a very accurate information that could be harmful. So you can't really offer drug gene testing to consumers today uh, you, unless it's an over-the-counter drug like uh, drugs that you take for heartburn indigestion or for or anti-inflammatories. You can test for, for those and probably the FDA would allow that, but not for things like anesthetics or painkillers or uh, drugs where there might be adverse events. Are there some other applications for pharmacogenomics? That sounds like a, a big fancy term, and you equated it to drug testing. How how do you test for that? How do I know if my body's making the right things to process drugs that I may be given? So this is a big deal. It's estimated there are 1.5 million adverse drug events and 100,000 deaths every year in the United States from prescription drugs. Uh, all of us are born with certain variations in the genes that we inherit from our parents, which are responsible for metabolism of drugs. So some people will metabolize drugs slowly. Some will metabolize them more quickly, which means they may need a higher or a lower dose uh-huh. of each drug. So that pharmacogenomics is the test of those genes you're born with, how they influence the prescription drugs that you take, and, and as a guidance to your physician to be more careful, avoid completely, or use at will uh, certain drugs. And we think by implementing that on a wide scale, uh, we will reduce the number of adverse drug events and make drug safety uh, a priority for our patients. I just have to tell you, Dennis, the last prescription that I was given, Mm -hmm. I said to my doctor, you know, as part of a study that I was in, I have some pharmacogenomics information in my folder, and it was affected. One of the the drug that they were going to prescribe to me was something that was affected by my genome. I was an under-metabolizer of it. And I had it done on myself, and I always tell people uh, I would not take another prescription drug without consulting that list the rest of my life. Of course, it never changes through your whole life. And right now the test we're offering is only in the uh, $250 to $300 range. It's relatively cheap covers 450 prescription drugs. Um, we, we think it should be part of the routine care of all of our patients eventually. It seems to me from interviews that w- we do about genomics that possibly this is going to be expanding the fastest, the pharmacogenomics piece. Am I getting that right or no? Well, it's certainly in the, in the area of uh, predictive genomics and healthy genomes. It's, it's low-hanging fruit. We think it's important. Right. We think it's useful. It's not very expensive. Uh, it's It's got... Uh, Physicians are interested in it. Uh, we think patients will find it valuable. So, yes, we think that's probably one of the early yeah. entry points. You know, there are other areas like cancer where it's already really become part of clinical practice. Should everyone be tested, or are there certain individuals for whom you would recommend this as a priority? Uh, well, for drug gene testing? You yes, mean, please. Yeah. Um, 
I personally believe everybody should be tested one day. Uh, the value of doing that still has to be proven. We want to make sure that we do have a positive impact, less drug adverse events, more efficacious outcomes. Uh, we don't want to do unnecessary testing, which doesn't help. So we still need to, there's some proof still required. Uh, but I do believe that eventually everybody will have this done. Let's talk about uh, where research and patient care come together. So uh, how do the advances in research make it into how patients are being treated? Well, this all starts as research, of course. The reason that pharmacogenomics or drug gene interactions are uh, prevalent in our thinking at Mayo Clinic is we've had a very strong research program in this for many years, and so it has become easy for us to capitalize on that and advance it into the clinic. But there are other areas uh, today that we're interested in expanding into. One might be inherited cancer, for example. It's estimated that 5 to 10% of all cancers have an inherited basis. Most cancer centers don't routinely test patients for that, and yet it would impact not just those patients, 1 in 10, 1, one in 20 patients, but also their, all of their family members. Uh, we have very strong research in this here at the clinic. Doctors like Dr. Fergus Couch, who's a world authority on the genes that put you at risk for breast cancer. We've been able to capitalize on that. We think this is something we should offer all of our cancer patients. So that will read directly from the research we've been doing into our clinical practice as one example. What's the latest on the All of Us program? Uh, Tell people what that is and and where does that stand? Yes, thank you for asking. President Obama uh, announced in 2015 an initiative to collect uh, samples, bodily samples, blood and urine from one million Americans representing the diversity of the population around the country. Uh, the idea is that they will be, it was now named the All of Us program, and I think it's important to note it's got bipartisan support in Washington, which one of the few things it does <laughs> these days. Uh, continues to have bipartisan support and funding. Mayo Clinic was um, selected to be the biobank or biorepository for those 1 million patient samples, which will be 35 million tubes of blood and urine. Uh, the idea is they will all have the genome of those individual sequenced and they will be followed over many years to better understand the value uh, or not of sequencing genomes on a sort of population scale. We've been talking about individualized medicine with the director of Mayo Clinic's Center for Individualized Medicine, Dr. Keith Stewart. We're going to take a short break. And uh, when we come back, Dr. Stewart is going to uh, preview for us the upcoming Mayo Clinic Conference, Individualizing Medicine 2017. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dennis Dota. And I'm Tracy McRae. Next week, Mayo Clinic will host the Individualizing Medicine Conference, bringing presenters from around the world to speak on genomics and personalized medicine topics. And we are lucky enough today to be talking with the director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine, Dr. Keith Stewart, who will open the conference with a session titled Clinical Implementation of Genomics, The Story So Far. Hmm. So, Dr. Stewart... What's the story so far? Well, I was stimulated to to give this title because I, uh, like everybody, I'm on Twitter these days, and I, I saw somebody that tweeted, you know, personalized medicine isn't there yet clinically, and I thought, well, that's not right. Um, so I decided I my, the, the focus of my talk will be demonstrating that, in fact, personalized medicine, individualized medicine, has become part of our routine clinical practice in cancer in diagnosing rare diseases, uh, which are probably inherited, and more and more even in healthy people. So the focus of my talk is how we're implementing this into the Mayo Clinic bedside uh, practice. As far as experts 
from Mayo Clinic or from elsewhere in the world, are there some presenters and their topics that you're most excited about? Uh, I'm very excited about all of our presenters. We've got a, a star faculty coming in. They're going to talk about all kinds of different elements of this. Um, uh, some highlights, perhaps, uh, we have uh, uh, scientist Dr. Ledbetter coming from Geisinger Healthcare System. They have sequenced the genomes of 250,000 patients. Wow. They've been extending those results, and they're publishing the world's top science journals of, of the outpa- impact of that and, and what it means for their patients. Uh, we have representatives from the National Institute of Health uh, coming to talk to us about the All of Us, one million American uh, cohort that is being launched and is now underway. Uh, we have experts in the microbiome coming to talk to you about how the bugs that you live with every day impact the genes that you're born with and how they work together and how that influences your health. And, uh, and some little more niche products which I think are, are fascinating, like can genetics help you um, avoid smoking or prevent smoking addiction as one of our speakers, which I think will be fascinating. You uh, just said a buzzword that I love to talk about, which is the microbiome. So uh, what do we, because your microbiome has its own genetics, correct? Of course, we live with one trillion bacteria in our bodies every day that uh, live in symbiosis with us. They, They live together happily, but they each have their own genome and they are doing their own thing and they're producing their own chemicals and there are a lot of literature emerging that that has impact on the drugs you take and how they're absorbed, on weight gain and appetite and diet, um, on even uh, unexpected things like cardiac disease and inflammation. So when I hear that, I think, all right, I've got my genetics. I can't change my genome. My bugs, my biome has got its genetics. It can't be changed. Well, it can potentially. I mean, antibiotics change it in maybe not good ways. But um, antibiotics don't change my genetics, they change my microbiome's so, genetics. So I think, um, I always remember the cover of Time magazine I use in my presentation, DNA is not your destiny was the, was the title. So genomics uh, impact a lot of what you are and what you become, but the environment is also critical. You know, where you live, what you eat, how you exercise, whether you smoke or not, all of these things impact you. Part of that impact are the microbes that you live with. Uh, that you probably carry with you from house to house, uh, and that's been shown. It's, it's more to do with the people that carry them than the environment. And, and it turns out that they have an important role to play in modifying how your genetics interplay with your health. All right. You know, people hear biopsy, you know, where you take a small sample of tissue to study that in a laboratory. Right. You have in the past used this term liquid biopsy. That is fascinating. Yeah, we're very high on this area. The, the, um, this is the concept of taking a blood test to detect cancer, and that can fall into two uh, particular uses. The one that is probably most exciting is the idea of a pan-cancer blood test, so that once a year perhaps, particularly if you're at high risk, we would take a blood sample to see if you have cancer. Pancreatic cancer? Any cancer. Any cancer? In theory. Uh, And we think that's a very exciting concept. In fact, we're partnering with a biotech company. That's kind of an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, this company raised a lot of money around this concept too, and and we've been delighted to partner with them in a a study which will enroll 120,000 women who are having a mammogram. Uh, We will take a blood sample from those women at the time of mammogram, we will see if we can detect using the blood test the cancer that the mammography finds or maybe even enhance the sensitivity of that testing. The second way you can use a liquid biopsy is once you know you have cancer, 
if you can monitor it in the blood through a blood test instead of doing x-rays and biopsies which are deep in the body, uh, that will make life much more efficient, much less um, risk of harm, and uh, a new way really to monitor the presence response to treatment and recurrence of cancer using a blood test. So we're pretty excited about the potential. I can see why. If you've been able to do this with a blood test all of this time, how come we're just starting to do this now? Well, we haven't been able to do it all of this time. In fact, we still can't do it. I, I, so, so with the sample I talked about where we're going to look at these 120,000 women getting mammograms, I think it's, it's almost like sending a deep-sea submersible down deeper than anybody's ever gone and seeing what life is down there. It's a bit like that. We don't know what's in there. We may all have cancer all the time. We don't know until we go deep enough and we look carefully enough. We haven't had the sensitivity of technology until very recently to do that, and the cost has not been compatible with doing this on a wide scale until recently. That's the STRIVE study that you're speaking Mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. If women want to be part of the STRIVE study Mm -hmm. and they don't live near a center like uh, Mayo Clinic campus, how can they do this? The the centers that run here are Sutter Health in California and Mayo Clinic, uh, all three of our campuses in Phoenix, Jacksonville, and Rochester, as well as our healthcare system in Eau Claire and La Crosse. And I think uh, anybody that's interested could contact one of those centers and arrange to have their mammography there. And, and all women who come from mammography uh, will be uh, asked if they want to participate in this study. Uh, we have one minute left. Can you tell us what is on the horizon for precision medicine, individualized well, medicine? Well, we think that um, if, if you ask us what our major initiatives going forward in the next year are, it's inherited cancer, uh, moving into that area to get it's liquid bowels we've already talked about. Uh, one we haven't mentioned is perhaps uh, the personalization of cancer therapy through immunotherapy, uh, trying to understand how we can harness the patient's own immune system. There's nothing more personalized than getting your own genetically engineered cells delivered back to treat your cancer. That's one area. Um, sequencing the genome of all Americans and all patients, all healthy people, I think is, is really our medium-term goal where I think that personally that there's so much to be learned this is a resource for your life it's not a one done test that we should and it's not that expensive that I, I suspect that's our future wow well thank you for sharing so many of these insights with us and giving us a little bit more understanding about it we've been talking with dr keith stewart previewing the upcoming individualizing medicine conference it's taking place october 9th and 10th in rochester minnesota uh, dr stewart by the way is director of the center for individualized medicine at mayo clinic uh, gosh dr stewart thank you so much for being here it's been great fun thank you still to come on mayo clinic radio dr tom shides joins me as co-host we'll discuss the importance of quality of life discussions during cancer care and we'll cover common colorectal problems with a Mayo Clinic expert. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. How often do you get a good night's sleep? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines recommend adults get an average of at least seven hours of sleep a night. Dr. Ronald Peterson, a Mayo Clinic neurologist, says prolonged lack of sleep could raise your risk of daytime sleepiness, weight gain, and even heart disease, and now you might be able to add Alzheimer's disease to that list. There were several studies on the impact of sleep on developing cognitive impairment and maybe even Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Peterson says the theory behind the sleep-Alzheimer's link has to do with a substance called amyloid. Amyloid, one of the proteins that's thought to cause the disease, may build up in the brain normally throughout life. 
But at night, when we're sleeping, particularly when we get into deep sleep, the protein gets cleared from the brain. So if you don't get into deep sleep, amyloid may not be cleared from your brain. So it's conceivable that impaired sleep over many years may actually enhance the buildup of these abnormal proteins in the brain. And in other news, shingles is a viral infection caused by the same virus that causes chickenpox. After you've had chickenpox, the virus remains inactive in nerve tissue near your spinal cord and brain. Years later, the virus may reactivate as shingles, causing a painful skin rash along nerve paths. If you're older than 50, your chance of developing shingles increases, but there is a vaccine that can lower your risk. In fact, there are two. The chickenpox vaccine and the shingles vaccine. The chickenpox vaccine has become a routine childhood immunization to prevent chickenpox. The vaccine is also recommended for adults who've never had chickenpox. Though the vaccine doesn't guarantee you won't get chickenpox or shingles, it can reduce your chances of complications and reduce the severity of the disease. Now, the shingles vaccine was approved by the Food and Drug Administration for adults ages 50 and older, whether they've already had shingles or not. Although the vaccine is approved for people age 50 and older, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention isn't recommending it until you reach age 60 or older, when the risk of shingles and its complications is highest. As with the chickenpox vaccine, the shingles vaccine doesn't guarantee you won't get shingles, but this vaccine will likely reduce the course and severity of the disease. Talk to your health care provider about whether or not you should consider a vaccine against shingles. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, for people with cancer, fighting the disease is, of course, the, the highest priority. And getting ready for treatment, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, the first order of business. Mm-hmm. But what about the side effects of cancer treatment? Stress, fatigue, pain, even questioning your own faith and spirituality. All of these things can severely interfere with quality of life during and after cancer treatment. And I know you and I are fairly close to this. You a little closer than me, but my wife has recently undergone cancer treatment, obviously harder on her than it was on me, but it's hard on everybody. What do you remember about yours? uh, The emotional side effects of cancer are huge. And all of those things that you said uh, lead to what is, I would say, a hurricane in your life. Yeah, uh, certainly worth discussing. Yeah, and so we're going to do that. We're going to discuss cancer treatment's impact on quality of life with Mayo Clinic gynecologic cancer expert, Dr. Amonica Kumar. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kumar. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here to talk about this important topic. Dr. Kumar, glad to have you on the program. Glad you're here. So we all know that having cancer is a big deal, whether it's yourself or one of your close family members or, or loved ones. And what is it? What, what do you try to tell your patients at the initial visit mm-hmm. about quality of life issues, not not just for them, but for their family and loved ones? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, and I think it's evolving. I think all of us, it, you, it depends on the patient, depends on the provider. But for me, I think um, you know, preserving someone's power and preserving someone's self within this journey is really important and everyone's journey is going to be different and I try to just like you mentioned I actually bring the family into it and I actually first really talk about 
you know, everyone is going to go through a different journey and sometimes at different paces and you're going to have different steps in that. And it's really important to allow for that, you know, forgive yourselves of the emotions that you might think are unproductive and give yourself some generosity just the way um, and give your family members generosity to go through that. And I, I, you know, really important when you're seeing me as an oncologist, whether it's in the surgical clinic or in chemotherapy clinic, you want to know what is the treatment? What am, what am I going to experience? What are the medicines? What are the side effects? And I, that's clearly an important part of what I talk about. But then I also sort of say, you know, one of the things we also need to talk about is the fact that there can be effects on lots of different parts of your life. And we can get very focused. I tell my patients, I put it back on them, and I said, we can get very focused on the surgery or the chemo and the numbers, but you only you can define what quality of life is. And that quality of life, I can't tell you what's quality of life. That has to come from each person, and it's based on their own values. And that patients have to make really value-based decisions about their cancer treatment. Almost all patients at the beginning of cancer treatment, and I say almost all because not all of them, We'll say, I want to treat this as aggressively as possible to get to cure. If cure is possible, that's what I want. And um, and so that's one value. But along the way, we also have to address other things, things like the feeling of powerlessness, distress, anxiety, nausea, or the fear of nausea, which is almost worse than the actual <laughs> nausea. Um, some of the drugs we give cause things like neuropathy. People don't even know what I'm saying when I say that, you know, really saying. And, and for example, neuropathy for someone who um, spends a lot of their time t- doing walks, doing reading books, maybe not a problem. For my patient whose biggest joy is knitting or that's what they want in their life, that's a problem. And so, so we have it's to... pain, weakness, and tingling of the, of yep. the our, our feet and hands, exactly. usually. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. And it can lead to an inability to do things like knit or sew or write or whatever. That powerlessness that you mentioned, I would have to chime in on that because I, I was 19 when I was diagnosed with lymphoma. My parents took over. We didn't discuss this, but my parents took over making all of the, dis- the decisions for me. And I didn't even realize at the time that that made me angry because mm-hmm. I was a new adult. I was 19. Mm-hmm. I will tell people now, ever since then, you know, it's been almost 30 years, I'll say, make sure that you are an active part. Make sure that you are feeling as powerful as you can. Um, and so ex- explain, expand a little bit on that powerlessness part. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, most patients will say, they, they feel like this is a disease happening to them mm-hmm. and that the treatments are happening to them. And they'll even say that they don't have any options. And, and I try to remind them, I say, you're the boss. Eve, like, I'm not the boss. Your family's not the boss. You're the boss. You get to say what we do and then what we don't do. We, I, I can't offer everything. You know, I won't offer futile treatments. But we have flexibility. And and sometimes I, you know, I don't even myself, even though I'm very tuned into this, I won't even think to say, oh, wait, does Mondays, does that not work for you? (laughs) Or the financial toxicity. I think that's um, really important that patients feel like they can't say, you know what, this is a really expensive treatment. Is there an alternative? What about the the effects of the treatment? Mm -hmm. You know, what radiation might present 10 or 20 years later or what this chemotherapy 
can do. I'm shorter because of it, Dr. Shives. <laughs> messes with, messes so. with uh, in between the vertebrae. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I did get shorter mm-hmm. after my cancer treatment. And, yeah. and when do you have that conversation? Uh, is it important to have that conversation early on about the potential long-term side effects of the treatment? Yeah, I, I think it depends on which of the side effects. You know, there is only so much capacity to right. listening and getting information yeah. someone can have. Um, there is There are communication sort of tools. I remember there was one very wise person who said, when the patient has looked away, they've stopped listening. Uh-huh. And so then you just have to stop speaking. And you know what? I mean, you guys are on the radio. You probably hate it when no one's talking, right? <laughs> I am the same. And you just have to pause because they're not going to take in anything. So I, I do think you're obligated to get into to what are long-term side effects early on because how do you make decisions right. about the whole treatment course but you I think you have to use your judgment as a physician getting to know a family right I like to get to know a patient what are your values what does your life look like what do you want out of your life to help make suggestions right it's, it doesn't help the patient if I just say here's your seven options you choose some of my job is to also so make a recommendation. Here are your seven options. I recommend this, number six, because of these reasons. This is what I heard from you. This is your disease. And that's why I would make this recommendation. And I think that getting to know someone and also inviting them to share their values with their providers. It's never an easy conversation, is it? And it's not a 15-minute appointment. Yeah, and it's not a one-time conversation either Mm -hmm. because you can have that many times before it all starts to sink in. And you have to because it changes, right? So that changes during the course of treatment. It changes with every surgical complication. What you think you're willing to go through and what you will be willing to go through can change or what you thought you would never accept sometimes becomes acceptable. All right. Dr. Ramanika Kumar, gynecologic surgeon, cancer expert, thanks so much for being with us. Great conversation. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to discuss common colorectal problems with a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, this may not be the most pleasant topic we've ever discussed. Is that a warning? That's a warning. Problems with the rectum. Now, they're all too common, and almost everyone will experience some rectal itching, pain, or bleeding at one time or another during their lives. A lot of the time, uh, these problems are they're minor. They're no big deal, and they get better on their own, maybe with a little over-the-counter medication. But in some cases, a trip to the doctor for testing and diagnosis may be in order. Here to discuss common colorectal problems is Mayo Clinic colorectal surgeon, Dr. John Pemberton. Welcome back to the program, Thank Dr. You Pemberton. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. Uh, Dr. Pemberton, it's so nice to see you. And Thank this you. is probably trip number... 10 oh, for you yeah, over the years, so. huh? I, I stopped so. counting. Yeah, and you've always been so good about uh, <laughs> oh, you're, coming you're here. Very and, nice. And, you know, we so appreciate that there are people like you who are willing to take care of problems down there. Yeah. How was it that you got interested I in being know. a colorectal surgeon? I don't know surgeon? the answer <laughs> that question. You're still Tom, asking re- yourself and that, I, huh? I am. 40 years later, I'm still asking. Yeah. But when people do have uh, rectal issues, pain, whatever it is, they are very happy when they finally decide... 
it's time to go ask for help. Exactly. For what exactly right. what help you can offer them. Exactly. So what's the main reason that people come and see you? Well, the main problem that people have that come in off off the street, you know, mm-hmm. not where, in other words, not referred in uh, by their doctor, are uh, are itching and discomfort, uh, difficulty with evacuation, um, sometimes some blood notice on the toilet paper. Those are the biggest things that they have. A few have pain, um, and uh, and we can talk about the causes of that. Well, is it is it mainly hemorrhoids? No. Um, I think one of the one of the misconceptions, common mis- misconceptions, that uh, patients have, the people have in general, is that hemorrhoids cause pain, hmm. and basically they don't. Really? No. Pain. If pain is a primary uh, complaint of a patient, um, almost always they have some form of a fissure, mm. an anal fissure, mm-hmm. fish, a fissure. Now, that what, is, what does that mean? Exactly? It's a. It's a. Um, it's a literally a crack in the skin or the lining of the very outside of the anus. Mm. And it happens very commonly. It happens mainly because patients have hard stools. Mm. And it literally can um, crack the skin. So the the caliber of the stool is, yep. is yep. so large caliber that it, it and cracks the firm, skin. Firmness. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what that does is it, it makes a small little crack in the, in the skin, as I said. And then um, the underlying internal sphincter muscle, which is right there, uh, and it's almost always posterior towards the coccyx. Okay, in the back. The, in the back. Um, that's, uh, that exposes the muscle, and the muscle goes into spasm. And it's a circle, a cycle. The, the fissure causes a spasm. The spasm keeps it from healing. And so our approach is a stepwise approach to the management of those problems, um, but it's mainly uh, geared toward or aimed at uh, stopping that spasm. What, so how center. do you get the thing to heal and, and well, people again, continue to have bowel it's a, movements? It's a four-step, three- or four-step process uh, with us. First is changing habit and using a lot of stool bulking agents uh, like Metamucil or Consul or Benafiber, things like that. Uh, that changes the caliber of the stool and the, the um, consistency of the stool so that it's more easily passed, less likely to cause disruption of the skin. Then if that management technique isn't helpful, then the next step is the use of topical agents meant to relax the sphincter muscle. Really? Again, breaking the cycle is huh. the key. Three and four, then, uh, if the topical uh, agents don't work, then we have been, for the last five years, six years maybe, been injecting Botox, believe it or not, into the anal sphinct- internal anal sphincter, again, with the idea of relaxing it, Relax breaking the cycle, and stopping the discomfort and the bleeding that, ac- that accompanies that at times. The last step is an operative intervention. It's called a lateral internal sphincterotomy, meaning, again, breaking the cycle, taking the spasm out of the internal sphincter muscle uh, by an operation. But that is associated with some problems, potentially. Up to 30% of patients will experience some form of uh, incontinence to gas, mainly. Over time, over a three- to four-year follow-up, that drops down to less than 1%. So Mm -hmm. it's it's a temporary problem, but nonetheless, 
enough of a problem so that we try the first three steps first. All right, before we talk about rectal itching and hemorrhoids, mm-hmm. which are more common, tell us about this condition called proctalgia fugex. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. It's a symptom complex that almost always occurs in perhaps interestingly, more type A personality people, people who are really hyper all the time. And they have problems with deep-seated rectal discomfort. And it's mainly, if you examine those patients, you can often find a spasm and tightness in the, in the uh, levator ani musculature, which are the muscles that form the bottom of the pelvis through which the anus travels. And if you can relax those muscles, the proctalgia almost always disappears. Severe rectal pain caused by muscle spasm. Mm-hmm. And usually goes away spontaneously. And there isn't really anything you can do about well, it. Well, you, you can, with proctalgia fugex, address sphincter uh, relaxation and what's called shortwave diathermy, which is useful in the management of a tense pelvic floor that is relaxed by shortwave diathermy. Very interesting. How about hemorrhoids? What about them? All right. <laughs> rectal bleeding, most rectal bleeding is caused by hemorrhoids. Yeah. Myth mm-hmm. or matter of fact. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, when uh, do you, should you go in and see your physician? I think if, it, if it's uh, more than just toilet paper blood. If you have a little smear of blood on the toilet paper, I would counsel a patient on the telephone perhaps of using more stool bulking agent. Uh, like a Metamucil and so forth, and trying to change the habit and not strain its stool. But if that doesn't work, or if there's dripping of blood into the toilet, that's a different story. And one drop of blood, one drop of blood in the toilet looks terrible. Hmm. It really makes patients freak out. So I guess if there is more than toilet paper blood, they should probably contact their physician. I would imagine people put off coming to see you mm-hmm. when they have any sort of issue mm-hmm. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Is there ever harm that results from that, or is it just you saying, well, we could have taken care of this for you a long time ago? No, I think harm is not part of the equation. They just could have gotten relief a long yeah, time exactly. before. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying uh, previously that straining at stool was the primary cause, almost the only cause of hemorrhoids. You're that exactly is, right. That is true. And so, that's why that's why the management of hemorrhoidal disease, if a patient really does have problems with hemorrhoids, is directed towards changing that dynamic, changing the habit. But you can fix hemorrhoids, right? Yeah, you can fix them, mainly with two forms of management. One is uh, banding, and one is hemorrhoidectomy. Like you put a Band-Aid around it. You put a a rubber band, actually, on the hemorrhoidal group, high up in the anal canal, away from the sensation part of the anal sensatory uh, area of the anal canal, and that can keep them back up, that pulls them back up inside, keeps them from prolapsing down into the anal canal, and eliminates bleeding in about 80% of patients. Bigger problem for men or women? Uh, Either one. Hmm. All right, one thing we haven't covered, 15 seconds left. What do you do about rectal itching? <laughs> Try not to itch. The biggest help can be some over the counter medications. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Okay. John Pemberton, colorectal surgeon, talking to us about common colorectal problems. Appreciate having you on the program. Thanks, Always. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. And that's our program for this week. 
For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.